This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our digital director, Mike Hogan. Good morning, Katie. And joining us again, we have our senior editor, Hilary Busis. Hello. And joining us again, our Hollywood writer, Johanna Desta. Hello. Glad to be back. Uh, we are missing Richard Lawson this week because he's moving. Congratulations to Richard on finding an apartment. If you follow him on Twitter, uh, it has been quite a journey for him, uh, but he'll be joining us back again soon. And we have a lot to talk about, although I will also say I went back and listened to a little bit of our episode from this time last year. Uh, and we were talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood coming out and the Toronto lineup and the Cats trailer. And now the fact that like we think we have a lot to talk about now shows you how much has changed in the last year. But I wanted to start by letting Johanna... Uh, log roll a little bit for a great story uh, that went online this week. Johanna, you talked to, I mean, the woman who I think is the face, if not the voice of the pandemic, uh, Sarah Cooper, famous for her Trump lip syncs. Um, tell us about talking to Sarah and actually hearing her real voice, which I don't think I ever have. Yeah, I think that was the thing I was most excited for, just to hear her real voice. I feel like a lot of her fans don't actually know what she sounds like, which is very surreal. But it was great. I did a Zoom interview with her a few weeks ago now at this point. She was wearing the blazer that she always does for her, like that she always wears for her impressions. She was in the WeWork where she shoots like a lot of her stuff. So I was very <laughs> like on the scene with her as much as I could be. But she was great. You know, she was really, really sweet. And she she has memorized so many Trump speeches that she has a really interesting psychoanalysis like reading on him. Um, so it was really interesting to hear like what she thinks of him from that point of view. Can you summarize it for our listeners? Yeah, um, well, I don't think this will shock you, but she called him a sociopath. <laughs> she called him evil. Mm. But she was, you know, she was talking about how certain things are like harder for him to talk about. Like whenever he had to talk about, you know, loss of life or like try to be sympathetic towards the American people because of the pandemic, he would stumble on his words. He would struggle a lot. And she found that um, really, really interesting. So that was like one of the key takeaways. I think if she did a shot-for-shot shot remake of Cats, it would win Best Picture this year. That's my <laughs> An Oscar suggestion. Oscar for Sarah Cooper. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it's too late either. I think that could happen for this year. I think she could do it. It's funny. Like if you go far back on her TikTok, she does lip syncs of other things, but she's you know completely abandoned that because of Trump mania. Um, but yeah, I'm excited to see her do other things. That was something we talked about too. Is what she wants to do after this because now she's she's got like a whole team assembled. Hollywood has come calling for her, and she wants to write a show about the pseudo character that she plays in all of her Trump videos, which is like this 
bizarro girl boss who fails all the way up. Um, and she wants to write a show based <laughs> on that. And I'm, I'm really curious about that. Yeah, especially like after, you know, the stories about the wing and the other like, you know, quote unquote girl bosses of the era. I feel like that's even more relevant than like playing Trump right now. Like that's something she could play as herself. And like that tone that she's striking in those videos with all that unearned confidence. Um, I would love to see that. Well, to um, to preview the rest of the episode, we want to talk about uh, a couple of uh, high-profile cancellations in recent weeks, including Tenet's release on the Telluride Film Festival, as well as the plans for fall festival season. And then we're going to talk about, to me, what seems like the only show on the air that anyone is talking about right now, which is I May Destroy You. Pro- sorry, maybe I May Destroy You and also The Floor is Lava, which we'll do another episode about someday. But first, let's talk about Tenet. Uh, yesterday, as we record this, uh, Warner Brothers announced it will be delayed indefinitely, which I think everyone assumed would happen. But to me felt really depressing anyway because there was just always a sense that like maybe things could be normal again somehow I don't know how did you guys feel when you saw the tenant was delayed other than well I guess that was inevitable I just don't understand really why Warner Brothers kept pushing the date to a specific release rather than just kind of from the from the start when it was clear that July 17th wasn't going to happen, why they didn't just kind of take it off of the schedule and say, you know, we'll put it back when theaters are open again. Like, something a little more ambiguous than, you know, pinning their hopes on specific dates more than once just to see those get dashed as the pandemic continued. I mean, that just seems like, uh, maybe if they had done that, they could have avoided some heartbreak. Well, it's kind of an effort to throw a bone to movie theaters, right? Like, I think Nolan or Warner Brothers were explicit about being like, we want to be the first movie back. We want to help theaters recover. And maybe by having it that being like AMC could be like, okay, well, you know, by August 12th, we'll be okay. Um, and everyone could like pretend for a little bit longer. Although the the power of self-delusion in this era, like, it might not be as useful as maybe we'd like to think it is. Yeah, it just really feels like Lucy with a football and we're all Charlie mm-hmm. Brown. I'm also imagining Nolan has enough clout that he's not going to allow himself to be put in limbo. So he he may be insisting, you know, if you're going to push it, like, I want to know the date that it's coming out, um, Mm -hmm. which might seem like a good idea until it continually gets bumped. It's funny how sometimes we I think of Warner as the sort of more conservative leaning uh, of the studios. And it's funny how they are the ones in this spot of like being so anxious to reopen and just getting sort of, like Hillary said, Lucy footballed uh, again and again. Although I'm not ruling out the possibility that that we're in a new timeline where Tenet actually came out in 1995. We should just <laughs> check. We should Google. Tenet's been out all along. Tenet yeah. was inside of all of us. <laughs> that is the pet theory um, of Hollywood uh, executive editor Jeff Giles, uh, that Tenet does not exist at all, that it is just a marketing campaign. Nobody will ever see it. Uh, everybody who's... a allegedly in the cast is in on the conspiracy um, (laughs) and the rest of us are just going to kept being strung along until the end of time. (laughs) It's like the perfect role for Robert Pattinson. Weird (laughs) (laughs) movie. I don't know. I I think every studio is just going to be put in this position where like it comes time for their big movie and they're going to come to the realization that they can't have a domestic release. I mean, one thing about Tenet that I find interesting, too, is that, you know, some sources are saying that it might release overseas, like it might start releasing in other countries. Although I don't really see that happening just because of the possibility of, you know, the movie being, you know, ripped and put online. But I don't know. I find that a really interesting prospect, too, is... um, you know, reinventing the release schedule and the release rollout in this way. Yeah, it's hard to believe that there could be a time when movies open in countries besides the U.S. and the U.K. first, and we get 
leftovers <laughs> after other places, after other markets have already seen. I mean, I don't know. That does doesn't that kind of feel like the like last nail in the coffin of American exceptionalism? Yes. <laughs> yes. We deserve it. Teach us a lesson. Yes. Yeah. Like we don't deserve tenant. And as such, it'll probably happen in about three weeks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's very clear that America does not deserve tenant at this point. Um, but I think you're right, <laughs> Johanna, that like if they release tenant in China or, you know, some or even like, you know, Spain or somewhere where the cases are much better, um, it will just immediately be online. And like Nolan fans are the people who you can imagine, you know, illegally downloading a movie. But also like, I mean, the financials are so kind of mind boggling. Like, how does Warner Brothers make any money? So is it worth it to like get $100 million from overseas rather than the nothing of waiting until 2021? Or the much uh, decreased returns that they would get if they released it on demand, um, which I guess just financially is unfi- financially unfeasible, even though don't you feel like every person with a pulse in the U.S. would want to see this movie if it were released on demand? I, I know that they wouldn't make as much yeah. money as if they put it out in the traditional theaters during a tr- using a traditional release, but I've got to imagine it would be a bonanza. I feel like it would make a lot of money, but I feel like Christopher Nolan thinking about somebody watching this movie on their iPhone is it's so powerful that Warner Brothers won't do it just out of fear. <laughs> He'll yeah. just die. It'd be so sad. Yeah, I wonder if like A Quiet Place Part 2 is the movie that does that because I don't think since Trolls there's been like a big movie that's open directly. I mean, I guess How Hamilton quickly we forget kind Scoob? Of- <laughs> Scoob, you know, the, such a tentpole release of the summer. Um, I feel like Trolls really went for it, and then a lot of other people have been more hesitant. But, you know, I'm looking at Box Office Mojo for whatever it's worth for a schedule. Like, The Conjuring 3 is scheduled for September right now. Like, that's maybe something that they'd put on demand. Like, Tenet, I think, is a real uh, outlier for having Nolan behind it and being as big as it is. But, like, maybe Mulan? I don't know. Um, I don't know who would be close to considering that kind of on-demand release. Yeah, I mean, I think it requires a family-friendly movie, too. I think that was, you know, one of the things that helped Trolls a lot was parents across the nation were like, yes, we'll, we'll like, watch whatever our kids want to watch right now, and we'll buy a bunch and of times so they can watch it And if we thought that parents were desperate in April, <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor. Let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. Okay, so speaking of cancellations, which is the summer that we are in, um, it was about a week ago that the Telluride Film Festival announced that they would not happen at all, which is something I think was somewhat expected. But in the meantime, the Toronto Film Festival is kind of powering forward. Uh, They announced today that the opening film will be uh, Spike Lee's film of David Byrne's American Utopia, a Broadway show, which honestly sounds great and something I would love to watch. Um, And they sent out an email to press kind of explaining that all the press events will be remote. No one should plan to travel to Toronto, which if you're in America, you can't. Hillary or Johanna or Mike, um, watching the festival season kind of try to exist at all. Do you guys, is there a way that it can succeed or is everyone just kind of trying to salvage the best that they can um, and move on? I mean, I think both. It can succeed at salvaging as best it can um, is how I view it. You know, it's obviously going to be a different year. There's going to be fewer movies 
you know, I've been saying this for a long time. I feel like there is an opportunity for movies that might not otherwise get that much attention to get attention and be heralded, you know, in a year where basically Palm Springs and The Five Bloods are like the two movies that I can think of that came out that were good. You know, there's room for like something, you know, that would otherwise maybe be overshadowed by Tenet or whatever. I think it'll be really interesting. I think that the technologies and practices that are being developed now are going to continue to be in place. I think it'd be really interesting for the festivals to think as they're doing all this, you know, how can we create something that going forward makes the festival more inclusive and more publicly interesting and compelling. And then, you know, I think the Hollywood community, such as it is, has to just think about ways to continue to do its work while being sensitive to the fact that there are more important things happening right now than, you know, film festivals or or when we get around to like the Emmys and the Oscars, than those things, but that people still want to have those things. People still want to watch Saturday Night Live. People still want to watch sports. So I don't know. It's going to be it's going to be interesting, super different, lower volume of stuff coming out, which is which is not the worst thing, too. It would be nice to kind of spend a little more time with a fewer number of uh, films just as a viewer maybe this year and and give some more attention to things that might otherwise get overlooked. And I do wonder also if uh, the pared down aspects of it will mean that there's there are fewer opportunities for the movies that do come out to kind of fall maybe victim to is the wrong word, but to become kind of overblown or overhyped or overbuzzed uh, because I think that the feeling of watching something in your home is obviously very different from watching something in a movie theater that's packed with celebrities and that's packed with media people and that's packed with people who are really, really eager to make a movie into an event and a thing. And, you know, maybe that means that we get fewer... Yeah, I mean, this is not a not a Telluride or a Toronto movie, but maybe that means that we would get fewer things like Nate Parker's Birth of a Nation, which was this enormous Sundance sensation. And then not not only because of the background of Nate Parker himself, but the film also, I think, was reconsidered in like the harsh light of day after the festival and people kind of were a lot less hot on it than they had been um, because of, you know, the movie, its construction, its script and everything. And so, I don't know, maybe maybe that's kind of a good thing for these movies, that the things that persist are going to be things maybe of more merit and less buzzy because of the circumstances under which they premiered. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I imagine that if, if festival fever goes away, that's not a great thing if you're a PR professional in Hollywood. But yeah, it it could definitely change. I mean, it, literally in Sundance, they talk about the high altitude, and I think it's real. You know, you're a little lightheaded, you're like hungover from whatever or drunk, um, and and that you know, how are you going to be at home? It's is different. I do think one, it's obvious, but Toronto needs to make a a smart TV app that you can get on your Roku and on your Apple TV. Like this cannot be watching stuff on your laptop. I just don't think that that's a, I I strongly believe that that could be like a make or break thing on whether this is kind of a cool new thing or whether it's a total disaster. Yeah. I mean, I think about the festival fever thing that like, I don't know, maybe I'm too much of a PR person at heart. Like I think about seeing I, Tanya at Toronto, which I don't think is a like genre, def- like air defining masterpiece, but I had a lot of fun watching it. It was like really fun to watch at the TIFF premiere. That's kind of the engine that powered Allison Janney's run for supporting actress. And then what, like a year later, the same thing for If Beale Street Could Talk, which is a really quiet 
kind of thoughtful movie, I think the kind of movie that you really can engage with at home, but like the buzz out of that is what got Regina King her Oscar. Like those systems really work and having to rebuild it from scratch this year is going to be really fascinating to watch. Um, But I think the fact that that won't exist this year is why, you know, you see in the TIFF lineup we have so far, you're not getting a lot of like hardcore awards hopefuls. I think all of them are going to wait until January or February, probably, like they're going to kind of have to reinvent a system for themselves. Because I think if you have a movie that you have hope for, but it doesn't, it can't feed off the energy of a screening like that, then what's the point of debuting it that early? Um, which it'll make a really interesting look at the TIFF lineup. And I think some titles that might not get attention otherwise will show up. But I think you'll lose that kind of engine that fuels award season from um, any of these fall festivals that are still happening. I mean, I would argue that a movie that can hold my attention right now is a great movie <laughs> that deserves all the praise it gets. Um, so the old guard for best picture is what you're saying. I mean, I'm not I not like, saying I like the old that. Guard a lot. <laughs> well, one thing I think is interesting too is Telluride is going to release like the list of the movies that they were going to put up, right? That's something that they announced. I feel like I've seen rumors about that, but that's totally possible. Okay. Well, I I just wonder like if the PR folks who are, are you know figuring out how they're going to create new narratives will find a way to turn that into a narrative. Like, look, it was going to be a selection. It was designated as, you know, a chosen film by this group of people. Maybe that'll be yeah. enough buzz to like, I'm, I'm interested in seeing like how people will, you know, try to build that buzz anyway. I, I think Cannes released what would have been its lineup. A partial Cannes lineup was announced, even though the festival didn't happen. But I do think it's a really good point. The festival fever is kind of a, an excess of a thing that's really, really important and good about festivals, which is that a community of people get together and watch movies and sort of decide in real time which ones they're excited about, right? And then and then convey that to the world through, you know, social media and, and traditional media. And so trying to think about what is the what's the social aspect of whatever viewing um, mechanism there is, I think is is worth really, really thinking about. I mean, something that mm-hmm. will definitely not be the case this year, but I found super interesting is I got an Oculus Quest, which is the VR headset, and you can play games on it and do weird stuff on it. And partly just interested as the digital person at Vanity Fair, like at what point will this become a technology that we can use? But one of the things that is in it that you can do is go to a virtual movie theater um, and talk to other real people who are sitting in virtual seats near you. And it's a totally immersive 360 degree. I mean, you look around and you're like in a movie theater and everyone basically is looking around going, this is weird. The internet is super weird. <laughs> um, and on the screen was like something from the Monterey Aquarium of like of like jellyfish. So, I mean, it's just obviously just proof of concept. But you can imagine a world, these things cost $350 or something. You can imagine a world where, you know, in the next few years, Hollywood Studios could send an Oculus device to every voter and say, like, why don't you come to a virtual screening? Um, like, there's, there, the technology is really reaching a very, very interesting, crazy place. Um, more boringly, you know, they, they should just think about how to incentivize people to you know, share their thoughts on on social media and maybe have an opportunity to chat before and after. And it, obviously, the studios are doing things where they're having remote cast interviews and things like that. But you don't want to lose that feeling of a community and, and even that sense of exclusivity. As annoying as it is to the outside world, is also part of what gets people excited to share um, what they've learned and and build buzz on behalf of the studio. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see how the technology 
driven behaviors evolve because of this giant restraint of the pandemic. Yeah, who whoever winds up cracking virtual premieres and figures out a way to do them so that they are exciting and glamorous and, you know, something that you want to participate in, like that's going to be really huge because there's certainly there's certainly reason to continue employing those even after the world goes back to normal. I don't have any wood around me that I can knock on, um, so I maybe have to have just cursed the world to never return to normal. Uh, but yeah, the the handful of virtual uh, premiere events that I've quote unquote attended uh, have just been I don't know. They're such a bummer. Like yeah, yeah what, I haven't been to anything like this. What is it like? It's just it's like this Zoom call that we're on right now, except that <laughs> there is like a star in like a fancy dress in. There are stars and fancy dresses in a couple of the cubes, and I mean, there's there's a voyeuristic thrill of getting to look inside of a celebrity's house, I guess. But it's just sad. It's it's halting because you can't talk over each other. Um, the technology, right? And you know, they they have sent like publicity packages to into uh, some of the press people who are attending. So it's like. Everybody can raise their same promotional snowpiercer glass at the same time, but, like, it's, I don't know, it just, it bums me out. I don't know if there's a way to make them not a bummer. Maybe, maybe it's goofy Oculus headsets. Maybe if everybody's wearing them on top of their fancy dresses. Johanna, have you also been bummed out by Zoom premieres? I have. I actually wrote a piece about this because I, I, I went to heavy quotes to the Snowpiercer premiere. And yeah, it's just not the same. It's exactly what Hillary described. You're just looking at a really beautifully put together, you know, live Zoom. Um, there's lots of effort and clearly lots of money being spent on it. And sometimes really nice, you know, things being sent in the mail. Lots of free booze, lots and lots and lots of free booze. But yeah, it just it's <laughs> Wait, not maybe the same. I should get in on this. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, hey, you know, there's that. But yeah, it's just, it doesn't capture the feeling in the same way. The electricity of it all. And it can't capture yeah. the feeling in the same way, obviously. So I don't know, maybe there's a way to not not be trying to recreate the the feeling of being at a live premiere, just make it into something else entirely. And you know, I have no idea what that might look like. <laughs> I do wonder, though, if it's like if it's the French Dispatch, you know, the Wes Anderson movie that everyone's excited to see. It's got a huge cast, obviously. And so there's there's an excitement to see the movie itself that, you know, if it's a Snowpiercer, a little bit different. Like, I wonder if, like, if you're on a Zoom for 30 minutes before the movie starts and you get to see whoever's and, you know, get to see Timothy Chalamet and his beautiful quarantine hair. Um, and then the movie starts and you can, like, side chat with your friend. I mean, you know, obviously focus on the movie. And I wonder if, you know, the movies that usually would be at a fall festival will carry some of that excitement to make you want to put up with another Zoom uh, after your day full of Zooms. Are they making small groups? Because that's that seems to me to be what the key thing would be. It's like it's like going to a, an old, you know, awards dinner and you'd have a star at each table. Um, mm-hmm. So it's kind of like like when I taught this NYU class this summer, one of the things if you have a discussion on Zoom, you can create breakout rooms and just put everybody in smaller groups and then they can actually have a discussion, right? So you can imagine having, okay, at the beginning, like, hey, everybody, like quick remarks, there's 200 people on this call. And then it's like, all right, we're going to create 20 or 30 rooms and the stars are going to kind of visit the various rooms to talk to people. Then then you're at least starting to get something that's bordering on interesting and you can actually talk, you know. But like you said, Hillary, if there's 100 people on a call, it's just like, you know, we've been on those calls. It's a little it's a little difficult. 
I love the idea of like a uh, like an awards uh, dinner, you know, those lunches um, where, you know, you have one token celebrity at your table and they get like harassed by everyone else in the Zoom. I mean, it's a lot. I guess it's less work for them. They don't have to like show up in person somewhere. But um, I can really see that that yeah. taking off. I'm sure all the stars really miss those events. <laughs> I know. <laughs> this would be great. They don't have to take selfies with anyone. Oh, no, the, it's just me Zoom screenshots replacing selfies. The I mean, stars have you guys do done, miss like... the events because the stars <laughs> love validation. I don't know if you've, I don't know if you've ever <laughs> yeah. noticed this about movie Wait, stars. Wait, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> this is huge if true. Yeah. I mean, have you guys done like Netflix party or any of the other like watch something live with other people like just on your own? I, like, I have not really done anything like that. I've like watched some of the Zoom specials that have happened. But the idea of like scheduling an event at a time to all watch something together, I haven't gotten into. But it does feel like that has at least gotten more common lately and a festival could kind of adopt that. I have um, a couple of times at once using the Netflix party uh, Chrome plugin and once just by us pressing play in different places at the same time and, you know, like WhatsApping during the movie. Um, And it's fun. I mean, it is, uh, it's obviously not the same as being in the room and watching together, but um, there are ways in which it's better because you're not talking, so you can pay a little closer attention to what you're actually watching. Um, And you're texting during, which is what I would be doing when I was watching something on a TV anyway. So... It reminds me of how we have all watched the Oscars for the past 10 years, right? Oh, you're right. It's very much like being in a war room at Vanity Fair uh, on Slack. Everybody's (laughs) in the same room, but nobody's speaking out loud. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo. Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, well, speaking of things that we're all watching at home, whether or not with our friends, um, I said in the beginning of the show, it feels like uh, Michaela Cole's I May Destroy You is kind of the breakout show of the summer. You guys can tell me if I'm overlooking something, but it's the this is the one show that I see people on my Twitter feed being like, oh my God, I cannot wait for whenever the next episode is going to drop. And Johanna, you have been like extremely on the I May Destroy You beat, which I really appreciate because after every episode, I'm like, what? Who has Johanna interviewed about this? Um, so do you want to just, uh, I don't know, do you want to explain why this show has been such a breakout? Yeah. Um, so Michaela Cole came out on the scene with her show Chewing Gum a couple years back, and it was much more of a traditional comedy, but it won awards. Um, and she got the deal to do I May Destroy You. And she talked about like what it was going to be about a couple of years ago in her McTaggart lecture. Um, it's inspired by her real life. She was writing the second season of Chewing Gum, went out with some friends, her drink got spiked and she was raped. And she, you know, went through, like, reported it, um, tried to write through it and all that. And so the show is kind of, um, it's like a meta um, story. It's it's based on a writer who's writing her second book, um, who also gets assaulted and is trying to process the events of what happened and seeing the many ways in which the trauma manifests in her life and in her work. And it's not, originally I thought, it was going to be like a dramedy maybe like, and it is, but it's way more of a drama. It's incredibly, incredibly intense, but it's just, it's so good. And it's had kind of a slow burn. 
Um, I was talking about this, we were, Hillary and I were talking about this a while back, I feel like when it first came out, I think it was kind of slow to catch up with American audiences. It's also like staggered, like we're getting it way later than British audiences are getting it. But yeah, but now that American audiences are like, we're a little more than halfway through the season. It's yeah, like you said, the only show people can talk about right now. It's really amazing. And Hillary, you, I think, got, came onto it late because Johanna was recommending it. I did. I've got to say, I was slow to start watching it. I was reluctant because I knew the bare bones. Um, I knew that it was about assault. Um, I knew that it was about trauma. And I was, honestly, this is a, a running theme of my commentary today. I was like, I don't know if I can handle that right now. Um, I don't know if I have space in my brain for something any more complicated than The Floor is Lava. Um, I, so I waited. Thank you. Thank you for validating my love of the floor's lava. <laughs> Coming next week and intense discussion <laughs> of whether they should have used the pizza paddle to get into the oven or not. <laughs> um, so yeah, I avoided it for a while because I was worried that it would just be too much of a downer for me. Um, and it is heavy. I'm not going to say that it isn't, but I'm so glad that I started watching it because heavy as it is, it's also just so so well made so such great characters um such great dialogue it feels so real um it's not exaggerated in a way that i feel like a shows about similar there's there's not it's not taking place in a heightened universe it's basically taking place in our world um which i appreciate and it just is so kind of laser focused on these issues without being preachy or after school especially or I, I just think that it's got a, it strikes a really great balance um when it is funny it's very funny um and I do feel like it's not a show that I at least could binge uh because after an episode I feel like I kind of just have to take a few deep breaths and then you know get a palate cleanser uh but yes also I recommend it I would also love to talk about it with everybody I feel like that's also a part of why it was a slow burn. Like, I am I was a huge Michaela Cole fan, could not wait for this, got a bunch of the screeners, watched the first two episodes, and then I was just like, okay, I need to give this show a couple days or maybe a couple weeks and, like, think about it and then return to it. Because, yeah, the heavy parts are very heavy, and I think that speaks to why maybe some folks were slower to view it, because they had that hesitation or they, they had the experience with the first episode and they wanted to give it some more time to sink in a little bit more. As you keep watching it also, uh, you the world starts to get filled out a little bit more. Um, it's not just a show about Michaela Cole and, or about her character and about this particular assault. It's also about her friends. It's also about their acquaintances. It's also about all of these experiences that they have that all of them sort of start flashing back to and rethinking and wondering whether what they thought happened isn't really what happened. There's this, a twisty timeline element to it. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a lot more complex than the logline might make it seem. Yeah, the first two episodes kind of made me feel like it was going to be like a detective show almost. Like she has this night out, you know, the first episode is pretty much just that whole entire night out. And then she's trying to piece together what happened and she's having these flashbacks and she's trying to hunt down this woman who was out with her. Um, I am a little puzzled by how it has like uh, there's a lot of characters in the first two episodes who basically don't come back again and maybe they come back in the end. Um, and then in the third episode really 
pivots and it goes it's this flashback entirely in Italy where we see her at the beginning of the first episode as you're saying Hillary there's kind of twisty timeline stuff um and for a while I was like hang on I don't feel like this is a show that I was going to watch I don't care that much about this guy in Italy um but I feel like that really revealed what the show was doing it's you know it's saying here's two episodes to give you what you think you're getting you think this is like a fun young hangout show um with like maybe some drama to it but we're going to do a lot of different stuff um and then by the time I think it gets to is episode six the one where it's flashing back to when they were in high school um and Introducing this character of Theo, who becomes important. Um, and by then, I think you're like, wow, th- there's not really a boundary to what this show can be about, which is really exciting to watch in any series. Um, and especially, like, I didn't watch Chewing Gum, so Michaela Cole, I knew of her, but this is the first of her work I've seen. So being like, all right, person who is new to me, like, where are you going to take me? Um, and, you know, seven episodes in, I still don't really know where it's going, which is really exciting. Wait, stay with me here. What if I May Destroy You is Tenet? oh my god is robert pattinson in episode nine is that a spoiler oh boy i uh, only the people in the uk know (laughs) but yes this is the twisting uh christopher nolan-esque drama that you've been looking for if you can't watch tenet put that on your poster christopher nolan is watching the show and he's taking notes on the timeline okay (laughs) oh god who wouldn't love that I'm just going to say I'm loving this conversation because I'm one of the people who watched the first episode and was and was like, oh, my God, this is too much and and was scared off. So now I'm going to go back and, and give it more more time. Yeah, I mean, it's also 12 episodes. So she really which I was shocked by because I feel like I'm so used to British shows being half hour, six episodes in and out. We're done. Um, yeah, yeah. But it's 12 episodes and she really makes the most of it. And we really do get to learn so much more about the other characters, like Hillary was saying. Her best friends, Terry and Kwame, who are um, really fun and funny to be around, but are also dealing with their own issues of, you know, past experience with past, past experiences with um, like sexual trauma, consent. Um, and she really dives deep into all of that. And also Arabella, uh, Michaela Cole's character, is a really interesting figure as well because she is not she's not kind of what you would necessarily expect she's not just like funny smart woman gets assaulted like we watch her deal with the trauma like she's very complicated she's kind of an asshole a lot of the time um she makes a lot of bad decisions she's actually it seems more of an anti-hero or than you think she's going to be at the beginning which also gives the show another layer um so yeah it's uh it's definitely kind of if Russian Doll weren't already the name of a show, then maybe it would be appropriate <laughs> for I May Destroy You. Yeah. Hillary, as an editor watching Arabella fail to turn in her draft, did you just like want to slam her head against a wall? Because <laughs> I find that very stressful to watch. Uh, yes. Speaking of niche, uh, the only other show that I can watch right now is The Bold Type, and that just ended as well. <laughs> Um, but speaking of Russian Doll, um, Johanna, you've been interviewing, uh, you interviewed Michaela Cole. I think you've interviewed. Um, two of the other co-stars as well. And Michaela Cole uh, specifically referenced Russian Doll, right? She was inspired by that while writing the show. Yeah, she um, she watched it when it came out. And she, I mean, she was so effusive when she was telling me about it. She's a huge, huge fan of it. And she was saying that she, she actually doesn't remember if the idea in... I May Destroy You to have, like, the flashbacks and the back and forth. She doesn't remember if that was, like, her own idea or if she came to that conclusion after watching Russian Doll. She also loved it so much that she DM'd uh, Natasha Leone a poem, a 17th century poem by George Herbert called The Flower. 
which makes me feel like my DMs aren't interesting at all. Like, I would love <laughs> a, a 17th century poem slide through. Um, but yeah, she's, she's a huge fan of Imagine being smart enough to write this show and also read 17th century poetry. And uh, <laughs> like, we must all challenge our brains to, to get to Michaela Cole's level. Right? Yeah. But she's, yeah, she, she really, really loved that show. And it had like a huge influence on her. Um, and in the piece um, on VanityFair.com now, you can read about like all the other things that influenced her. She also really liked um, Jordan Peele's us she she also reached out to him um she said she definitely scared him and i was like i think his <laughs> threshold for fear is super super high yeah valid <laughs> yeah um and then like just uh, a bunch of like different movies i don't know she just she she drew from a lot of um, a lot of different things and she put them all together in this way that i find really interesting johanna have you watched all of the episodes i know they're all available for press Yes, I have. And I'm, I, some things you guys have said, I want to blurt things out, but I'm, I'm holding it all in. <laughs> but yeah, but everything is um, done with intention is the thing that I was really impressed by, but I won't say anything else. Like, even though it seems like it's jumping all over the place in the beginning and all, um, it sticks the landing, you might say. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess our British, our British listeners, uh, hello. Oh, um, yeah. They all, they you, know. you have to say hoy. <laughs> Like, how do British people greet each other? Um, but yeah, but it's all, all the episodes are out in the UK, so there are spoilers galore on the internet. Um, just FYI, but yeah, it, it, it sticks to the Well, that does it for this week's episode. Uh, next week, the Emmy nominations are coming out, um, so we will be on to talk about them as like, right after they happen. Um, unfortunately, Emmy Destroy is not eligible yet this year, so uh, we'll have to wait a year for that. In the meantime, find us at VanityFair.com. You can find Johanna's pieces on I May Destroy You and Sarah Cooper. And, uh, you know, the rest of us are up to stuff, too. But, Johanna, you really got the uh, the spotlight on all this week's content. Congratulations. Thanks. You can find us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen, where we love to hear from you. And we are on Twitter on our own. I'm at Katie Rich. And Mike? Mike underscore Hogan. And Hillary? Hillabuster. And Johanna? At Johanna Desta. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the most topical hot take of July 2020 goes to Hillary Buses. What if I May Destroy You is Tenet? I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again at an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> 